Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, welcome to 2021 and with it, a new Investec Economics webcast. Uh, I'm Philip Shaw. I'm the chief economist for Investec here in London. Well, I haven't yet heard anyone say roll on 2022, but it's obviously been a tough start to the new year. The sharp rise in COVID infections late in 2020 resulted in most of us in the UK being placed back into a lockdown. Um, and to discuss the situation and how the situation may pan out, I'm delighted to welcome a, a good friend of Investec, Professor Michael Barrett of the University of Glasgow's Institute of Infection, Immunity and Inflammation. Hi, Mike. Great to have you on the webcast again. We seem to have had some good news and bad news on COVID since you were last with us in early December. But, you know, whichever the news seems to keep on coming, I hope you're well. Uh, very well, thanks, Phil. And uh, I'm very pleased to be back to talk again, although uh, in many ways I really wish I wasn't because uh, I think last time I was on, we were, we were hopeful that we were really looking towards the end of the tunnel. Um, but the tunnel's got a little bit further away again, but, but let's hope we're, we're still making our way there. Um, thank you. Indeed. Okay, so we'll follow the usual format today. I'll talk about some of the pressing economic issues we're facing here in the UK. Uh, I also plan to say a little bit about the US, uh, partly because, of course, it's very topical right now, but also as it's critical to the world economy and global markets this year. Um, after that, I'll pass you over to Professor Barrett and we'll, of course, have a question and answer session afterwards. So let's begin on the economics and uh, the COVID situation in the UK. And it's over a year since we began to learn about the COVID crisis. And in terms of the numbers globally, um, there um, have been 97 million reported cases uh, and over 2 million deaths. Um, and in the UK, I think we're now in the third week. It's difficult to keep track, isn't it? But I think it's the third week of what effectively is our third lockdown. Most recently, the figures show that the surge in daily UK infections late last year has started to go into reverse. So that's obviously good news. Um, and, and that actually applies to the numbers on a world basis as well. And I'll just make a few economic related points. To begin with, our reading is that the downturn in daily cases indicates that the, the lockdowns are actually working. And, you know, perhaps given the timings of the reduction in the infections, that perhaps the tier four restrictions were actually bringing cases down, albeit too slowly. It would be interesting to, to hear Professor Barrett and his views on that. But one of the issues affecting the economy is that, that the current lockdown may need to last a while given what appears to be the greater transmissibility of several new COVID variants. Uh, we've got a review from the government on the 15th of February, I think it is, and that may not result in much, if any, change in current conditions. Now, there is talk about Easter being a key date um, to, to unlock the conditions. Um, don't know if that's the case, but I have looked it up. Unfortunately, we've got an early Easter rather than happening it happening at the end of April. So there's a little bit of hope there. Um, second point is that the economies seem to have adapted um, since March, April last year. Recently, the survey numbers, which come out of Europe in general, have held up relatively well, given widespread lockdown conditions in, in numerous countries. And if you look at the UK picture specifically, GDP in November fell by 2.6% month on month um, over the lockdown period. Now, compare that with earlier in the year, um, G GDP fell by 19% in April, 7% in March. Um, so why have we got a more modest decline this time? And I think you know, one is that you know, if a sector is closed anyway, then tightening restrictions isn't going to make a huge amount of difference. But um, it's also it seems to be the case that the economy is coping a little bit better with social restrictions than it was last year um, or earlier in the year. Um, retailers, for example, do seem to have um, got better at their online offerings. Uh, we do think that the economy will contract over the first three months of this year. I think that's virtually inevitable. But as far as the fourth quarter of last year is concerned, you know, we're, we're of the view that the GDP probably rose a touch 
um, in Q4 compared with Q3. So, you know, on the basis that we get some unwinding of the restrictions over the spring, uh, we don't think we're going to get two successive uh, GDP declines over successive quarters. And, you know, for those who watch this thing, it means that the UK um, will not probably have gone through a double dip recession. Another point is that manufacturing um, is doing okay, and that's been helped by an upturn in the global economy more widely. Uh, major contributor here is Asia, and it's quite interesting if you if you look at the social restrictions in East Asia, they are pretty modest compared with Europe, and um, amid tiny infection rates. So if you if you take Japan specifically. Um, its case rate per capita, daily case rate, is about one twentieth of what it is in the UK. Of course, the, the great game changer we hope will be the, the vaccine um, that will help out, help to snuff out transmission, allowing the um, relaxation of the social restrictions and raising confidence, improving spending. And the government's been criticised for the poor handling of the pandemic, though I think internationally it, it's not on its own here. But one thing it does appear to have got right is vaccination, um, first on pre-ordering large amounts of vaccine and, and also um, rolling out a, a fast inoculation program. And um, interesting stat, we've got, um, I think, 4.6 million people having been vaccinated at least once so far. And that now exceeds the, the number of recorded COVID cases in the UK, which is three and a half million. When does life um, get back to normal? And again, that, that's something which um, I expect Mike will, will give a view on. Um, I guess it partly depends on how many variants of the COVID virus emerge internationally, how serious they are. Um, one view I do hear reasonably frequently is um, that governments are becoming averse to reopening economies and shutting them down again to contain the virus. So, you know, there seems to be a debate um, in policymaking circles uh, banning international travel or at least having an Australasian style um, hotel quarantine period for people that arrive into the country. So the idea is then that when cases and hospitalizations are low, you can open up the domestic economy. Now, whether the government's inclined to do that, I guess, um, remains to be seen. On the US and stepping away from the virus for, for, for a minute or two, I thought I'd make a few points um, following Joe Biden's inauguration yesterday. Um, so a couple of points on politics, a couple on economics. And and as, as you probably know, on the 5th of January, the Democrats won two runoff elections for the US Senate, both in Georgia. Um, pretty narrow, though slightly greater majority than, than Biden gained in November there. The balance in the Senate is now 50-50. And the US Senate rules are that if you've got a tied vote, then that tie is broken by the vice president. So what that means is that um, Kamala Harris has the casting vote, uh, which gives the Democrats control a bit narrowly of the chamber. Now, a point which isn't widely advertised is that the Democrats actually lost ground um, in the House of Representatives in the November elections, and they only actually have a majority of 10. Now, that is actually the narrowest majority for any party in the House um, for about 20 years. Um, you've got finely balanced numbers, therefore, in both chambers. And the Democrats arguably are vulnerable to rebellions on the left of their party in the House um, as well. So the logical conclusion, I, I think, from the overall political makeup is that there's got to be a degree of bipartisanship across the aisle to get policies through. And, you know, with respect to Donald Trump's trial in the Senate, I don't really know where that leaves things. Would the numbers stack up for a conviction because you need a, a two thirds majority for a conviction? Um, and therefore that would require 17 Republican senators to vote with 50 Democrats. But, and also we don't know how hard the Democrats will push that. So lots of question marks there. But on the economic side, by far the biggest change will be fiscal policy. It was almost under the radar that uh, the previous administration got a $900 billion stimulus package through right at the end of last year. Um, was it necessary? If you look at recent trends in the US economy, the labor market was weakening towards the, the end of 2020. 
we've actually had three consecutive monthly declines in retail sales um, as well um, in the fourth quarter last year. So from that perspective, then continuing unemployment insurance was essential. And um, the, the $600 stimulus checks, stimulus checks helpful as well. And arguably, you know, the passing of that package was responsible for at least some of the equity market rally that we saw at the turn of the year. Now, last Friday, Biden published his fiscal plans. Uh, they will include a $1.9 trillion package addressing the pandemic response, relief to families, which will include a $1,400 uh, stimulus check top up, uh, also uh, relief to small businesses and communities. And the idea, I believe, is to get this through quickly. Further measures will, will follow in due course, though, um, perhaps in February. Now, listening to the incoming Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen, who, of course, most of us will remember as uh, a previous Fed chair, um, she left us in very little doubt the other day that the administration plans to act big on fiscal policy and that there will be another um, spending stimulus due, perhaps coupled with some tax increases, but the emphasis very, very much on big stimulus. And, you know, as I mentioned, the numbers in the Senate and the House, where, of course, the legislation needs to pass um, very tight. So it's going to be difficult for Biden to do anything that's too, too radical. And some elements of his proposals may well not get through. But the big picture is fiscal policy is very supportive um, to the US economy and indeed the global economy and arguably also to you know, global risk assets as well. Um, as far as the US economy is concerned, to give you an idea of comparison, our benchmark is that we don't see the, the UK economy regaining its pre-pandemic size, i.e. Q4 2019 GDP levels, until mid-2022. In the US, by comparison, uh, we see that being reached in the third quarter of this year. So that gives you an idea of, of, of relativities there. Um, so overall, yeah, we, we see US fiscal policy playing a major part in, in, in the narrative for the world economy and, and markets this year. So hopefully, you know, those economic points are helpful. Um, but returning back to the subject of the pandemic, I would like to hand over to Professor Michael Barrett. Mike, over to you. Uh, thanks very much, Phil. Um, and uh, I'll start talking a little bit about the uh, the global situation, the UK situation, um, where we're making progress and uh, the uh, very, very uh, sort of disappointing appearance of the new variants, which really have have knocked the UK's efforts back pretty substantially. So we're, we're very close to 100 million reported cases across the world, over 2 million deaths. Um, deaths are easier to count than cases because we know there are huge numbers of mildly symptomatics or asymptomatics. It looks from the data that the infection fatality rate, i.e. those who catch the virus and die, is somewhere between 0.5 and 1%. Um, so we're probably in the region really of 400 million cases um, or infections worldwide, which is very close to the 500 million reported flu cases in the the great flu pandemic of 1918. Um, in the UK, we've got three and a half million reported cases. I expect that we're going to hit 100,000 dead um, by next week. The US, we know, has uh, really, really uh, been out of control for some time, probably half a million dead by the middle of February. Sweden, a country that we've all looked to from time to time as, as, a, as a success story from not having a lockdown. Um, but unfortunately, I think things went uh, not so well in Sweden towards the end of last year, although they have got things somewhat under control again um, in the order of half a million cases, 10,000 dead. And when one compares the Scandinavian countries because of some of the similar um, social uh, habits, uh, well, you look at uh, Norway, they've done a lot better, only 60,000 cases, 500 or so dead. And Denmark as well has done, has done better than Sweden. Now, of course, those other countries did have a lockdown, there were consequences of that. But if the vaccines are going to work and be rolled out globally, then those countries who did hit the pandemic hard and early 
are going to be smiling because they would have had very few um, cases and deaths um, and because the vaccine may get them out of the uh, woods very very quickly um, then they the net result I think is going to be very very uh, good for those countries New Zealand for example still hasn't gone beyond 25 deaths uh, from COVID-19 which is is truly amazing uh, we often ask about lockdowns do they work I mean we lost a hundred thousand nearly in the UK already I predicted that we may have 80,000 in the first year um, but that was 80,000 predicted without the draconian lockdowns that we saw last summer and the one in which we're living at the moment um, so I think we could easily have lost half a million people in the UK this year had we not locked down I think that that locking down was absolutely essential um, testing has continued we have the lighthouse labs we'll have the mega labs coming um, along uh, shortly for a longer term capability in testing to try to make sure this this doesn't happen again and we're also seeing advances in other rapid tests they're not as accurate as the PCR test which amplifies very small numbers of viruses um, but we are seeing other amplification methods coming online which will give a much quicker result the lateral flow tests have been pretty controversial because they're not all that accurate I would say that they they have their place if they are used properly and we understand that they do have a relatively low accuracy but so long as we take a positive to be a positive and an asymptomatic person and behave accordingly i.e that person um, is quarantined and their contacts are traced and put into quarantine it would have a, a benefit the big problem with all of the tests and trace that we've had i think has not not been the testing it was slowish starting but it's been it has been uh, very very strong in the united kingdom but unless we do the tracing and enforce the isolation then you're just not going to get the benefit and sometimes you ask why are you doing all of the testing if you're not actually using that to intervene properly in the pandemic and i do sense that the government are, are really getting that now because we're seeing a lot more aggressive rhetoric from senior politicians about people not sticking to the rules and not sticking to the rules has been really fairly calamitous i think in in terms of how uh, the uk's um uh, progressed in the pandemic we're also making a little bit of the time progress with drugs we know that dexamethasone a cheap um, steroid became uh, available to treat covid 19 over the summer and that that really has diminished the numbers of people dying um, tocizumab has recently shown it's a more expensive anti-inflammatory uh, but it's working and it adds to the benefit that dexamethasone gives and other anti-inflammatory drugs are proving efficacious some of the antiviral drugs i think have been a disappointment um, i was always very keen on remdesivir looks very good uh, what remdesivir doesn't do is it doesn't help you out when you're seriously ill and it's too difficult to administer when you are not seriously ill so so president trump got it um, but most people can't get it when it will be beneficial during the earlier stages of the infection because you need to inject it in a hospital setting when most people with a virus that's not yet caused the inflammatory responses that really cause all of the damage um, uh, has kicked in um, convalescent anti-sera is proving disappointing and um, this is collecting antibodies from people who have had the virus and then using those to try to uh, slow down the infection in other people but again the problem is we're tending to give these drugs to people in the late stage of the disease when they may be risking death and again anything that's aimed at the virus is too late because the pathology associated with the late stages leading towards death is nearly all to do with inflammation that's kicked off because of the virus but the virus is no longer a key participant in the pathology as you're moving to that to that late stage so what what we really need is good antivirals that you can give orally early um, to try to slow down the the growth of the virus before that inflammation kicks in of course where where the great news has come has been in the vaccines and as as phil said um, the UK has been ahead of the game in this, both in, in development. We know the Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine is 
is now licensed and being used, and we know that it's um, it's 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 ease of distribution and administration that still makes it potentially the best of all of the vaccines. We have Pfizer BioNTech um, being used widely across the globe. Moderna in some countries in the UK has also uh, approved the Moderna vaccine, and uh, it will be springtime that we'll be we'll be having that available as well. Um, vaccinated four and a half million people with a single shot so far in the UK. And some people are complaining that's not enough. And of course, nothing is ever enough. And we would love it to go more quickly. Uh, but this this is actually remarkable. I think it's something that we can really, really look at the way that the distribution logistics have gone for the vaccine so far, the way that the public have been out there getting vaccinated appropriately um, this is, I think, one of the great positive and remarkable stories from a public health perspective as, as, as what one can do and what can be achieved when the will really is there. Um, so the UK licensed the vaccines very quickly, very agilely, and I think that was, that was absolutely uh, necessary. And I think some of the other nations who have been less fast in doing so have, have not done their populations any great service. The data was there. Data takes a long time to review, but not normally because it takes a long time to review. It normally takes a long time to review because there's so many other things on the desk of those involved in the in the regulation. But of course, the priorities here were such that, that everybody should have been able to look and judge the data as quickly as the, as the UK did. Um, I'm a little bit less enthusiastic about the decision for the switch to a single versus double dose or in, or, or to, to delay the second dose. All of the vaccines were designed requiring a double dose and the second dose was trialed for the most part to occur three to four weeks after the first dose and that's where the success in the trials was seen. Now there are differences between the Oxford AstraZeneca and the Pfizer-BioNTech and Moderna vaccines in their basic uh, structure. The Oxford-AstraZeneca vaccine has a coronavirus gene for the S protein put into a different virus, an adenovirus, a common cold virus that's itself been crippled so it won't replicate. When you put that vaccine into a person, the adenovirus gets into our cells. It can't replicate itself, but the S protein from the coronavirus that's been genetically engineered in to that um, uh, adenovirus starts producing S protein and we respond to that S protein and the adenovirus hangs around for quite a long time so you keep producing that S protein for quite a long time as well. The Pfizer Moderna vaccines are mRNA so they just put an RNA now generally in biology DNA becomes RNA, becomes protein. In some ways, the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines based on RNA get turned into the protein more quickly. However, the RNA hangs around in our cells for less long than that Oxford AstraZeneca adenovirus. So you stop producing the protein against which you're making an antibody response more quickly. Um, it turns out that the biology behind that adenovirus vectored vaccine has told us for, for several years that actually a longer wait before a booster is better because you continue to produce the protein for longer and that sort of matures your immunological responses in ways which work better after a 12-week gap. That's not necessarily the case for the mRNA vaccines. They don't hang around for as long. Um, so getting that second dose in is thought by both Pfizer and Moderna to be, to be quite important. Um, so I, I, I'm a little bit uncomfortable about the uh, short, or the, the lengthening of the gap between the first dose and the booster. The logic for doing it is very, very obvious. We know that as a single dose for sure, the mRNA vaccines do give a decent amount of protection, but not as, as much as when you get the booster. And because of that, so my mum actually turned 80 this year and uh, got her first shot very, very quickly. After then, she got the Pfizer vaccine 
Um, and I've told her she really needs to stay indoors for the next three months until she's had that booster. Um, because I think there's, there's probably at the moment from the science too much of a risk of getting the virus even with that first dose. So I think from a personal perspective, from what I've seen of the science, I would recommend um, continuing to, to, to shield uh, for that, that three-month period. Um, but I think we can see light at the end of the tunnel there. The other thing that's that's happened, uh, which is bad news, I think the vaccines have been fantastic news, uh, but, but the reason that the government decided to go for that lengthening was to get the first dose into as many people as quickly as they can. Um, the reason they've had to do that is that in December, we saw that there was a new variant, so-called Kent variant, uh, which all of the evidence has indicated is spreading more quickly. And we can see that because you sequence the virus and the UK again has been fantastically ahead of the game in terms of our sequencing capability. We can see the new variants as they emerge pretty much in real time. And we picked it up. And what you saw was actually starting in September, the proportion of the new variant compared to the old variant was growing and growing and growing. And it was really by the middle of December, it, just, it was absolutely crystal clear that the new variant was transmitting much more rapidly than the old variant and therefore replacing it. We still don't know exactly why that happens. There are two good theories. One is that the mutation, which is in that S protein, means that the virus binds more tightly to receptors on our cells, which means that it can uh, if you like, get into our body and take hold more effect effectively than the old variant could. It also seems to replicate more in the upper respiratory tract. So you get more viruses in your upper respiratory tract. So you're going to be breathing out, coughing out, sneezing out more viruses of the new variant than you would do of the old variant. Um, in spite of the fact that it definitely transmits more quickly, there's no evidence to indicate that it's more virulent. It doesn't cause any worse disease. Uh, that's also true for youngsters. I think there has been a, a, a rumor or a, a concern that the new variant may begin to cause worse disease in younger people. That's not the case, but we are seeing more younger people infected with a new variant because we're seeing more people infected with a new variant. Um, perhaps even more alarming, we've seen a South African variant that has the same mutation making transmission easier and the Brazilian variant, but these latter variants have got additional mutations appearing in this S protein. And the reason we worry about those is that the vaccines that we've got are aimed at the S protein. And the more you mutate and change the S protein, the more risk there is that the immune responses we've made against the old variants will not be adequate to hit the new variants so well. Um, research so far has indicated that the vaccine-induced responses are hitting the new variants. But what we have to be very, very cautious of is that the new variants don't continue to change in ways where they become ever more remote from that original sequence, at which point we may get vaccine escape mutants, which would mean that the S protein vaccines that we have at the moment wouldn't be protecting against these new variants, which would mean that you've been vaccinated with an old variant of the S protein, you're good against the old variant, but you no longer respond to the new variant. It's not there yet, but we have to be really, really careful of that coming along. Um, good news is we can, we can also keep changing those vaccines very, very quickly. Bad news, it always is going to take months before they are generated, approved, distributed, and proven to be efficacious. But we do have other vaccines coming along, current vaccines all against the S protein. Uh, but we have a number of vaccines coming along which actually take the whole virus, the killed version. And that means that you are now injecting a whole array of different antigens against which the immune system is going to respond. And, and one hopes, therefore, that we, we will be able to keep ahead of the game. Um, so uh, it, it's a mixed bag of news. I think the new variant uh, really took everybody a little bit by surprise. Um, and, and that's why we saw the big, the big increase in numbers, which has precipitated the new lockdown. Um, vaccines have come online. 
there are going to be hiccups on the way. We know that, of course, there are. The manufacturing distribution was never going to just be exactly as we wanted. Uh, but I still think we're doing pretty well on the vaccines. And I, I hope that um, late spring, early summer, rather than early spring, as I'd initially hoped, we're going to be in a much better position. Um, thank you. Well, um, thank you very much, Mike. That was, as always, very interesting, as well as being very informative. Um, I think towards the end of your talk there, you, you, you were talking um, about escape mutants. So, I mean, bottom line, really, how serious a threat do you think these escape mutants are? If they happen, they're a very serious threat uh, because we would be in a position where Imagine the UK um, has managed to vaccinate by March of 20 million people um, and then continuing evolution of new variants means that they are no longer recognized by the antibodies and T cells we make against the old variants and we're really back at square one and we're having to get a new vaccine and go through the whole logistical process again and it, it, it won't be very much easier second time around as well. So. If it happens, it's 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 a real problem. Um, most immunologists, however, don't think it will happen. And that's because our antibodies we make and the T cell responses we make, we make against tiny little bits of the protein of about six to 10 amino acids. And this is within a structure which is actually um, sort of many thousands of amino acids in its total length. So you make antibodies against dozens of sites, you make T cell responses against dozens of different sites along the S protein. And the, the, the idea that you'll get a mutant which has changed all of those sites um, such that you no longer respond to them is, 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 a, is a pretty long shot. So immunologists are hopeful that the complexity of our immune response, even to the S protein, is going to be adequate to mean that we've always got some immunity to these viruses. And, and, it, and it, it could be that we don't have total immunity, but and that would be a problem for, for transmission, we can go on. But in terms of, of people, um, you know, having total immunity means that you wipe the virus out before it does anything. Diminishing immunity might mean that somebody who would previously have died from an infection uh, will get uh, a serious infection but not die and a serious infection may turn into a mild infection and the mild infection may turn into no infection at all so it would be a real problem we've got to keep an eye on it but we're hopeful that the complexity of the immune system means it will be too difficult for the virus to actually avoid all of our immunity okay thanks very much for that answer um we've got some great questions already um, having been submitted, please do keep them coming and we'll, we'll try and get through as, as many of them as we can. Um, so, Mike, we've got a, a, a related question here from somebody who's saying, look, how are the variants tracked? Um, because clearly when you're tested or tested positive, you're not told which variant you have. Presumably that there are some tests which um, keep uh, yeah, keep track of, of who gets what and, and where and when. Well, there are two. There are two ways. Um, one is that, and again, this is where the UK has definitely been world leading, is that every sample that comes in to the testing centres that's positive gets sent off to a sequencing centre. We we do some in Glasgow. There's a, the Sanger Centre in the um, in Hinkston near Cambridge does does most of the sequencing. Um, and a proportion of all of the viruses which are captured every day get a full genome sequence. You've got a team of bioinformaticians who can just go through those sequences one at a time and not only see where the particular variants are, but this is the way that as soon as a new variant comes, you're going to pick it up, which the Kent variant was picked up by sequencing in September and it was tracked thereafter. Just by a, a purely by coincidence, it turns out that the new variant, the Kent variant, and this particular mutation in the S gene, which is also found in the South African and Brazilian variants, it turns out that the um, Thermo Fisher PCR test, which is the PCR test which is used primarily in the testing centers in the UK, it turned out that one of the three probes that they use to see whether you've got the virus at all 
sits right in the middle of where that mutation is or well, that mutation sits right in the middle of the, of the probe for this and what that's meant is that every time a standard pcr test is done the most common test in the uk you're going against three different parts of the virus genome and the way you call a positive is if at least two of those are positive now the s gene probe suddenly started disappearing and my, my colleagues here in glasgow in the lighthouse lab began to say what's going on here and we soon realized it was because the new variant has lost the ability to bind that particular probe so actually now uh, by coincidence we can tell very very quickly exactly who's got the s variant versus the, the new variant versus the old because the pcr test which is widely used is no longer seeing the s gene you see the other two so you get two positives and negative you're positive for the virus but you've got the new variant um, so, so the combination of sequencing new variants, but also the PCR test is able to pick up the um, N501Y mutation. Okay. We've got a couple of questions which are related, so I'll sort of fire you a, a, a double question next. Um, from what you said, um, do you think there should be a different pattern of boosters uh, for the different vaccines and do you think there's a reduction in the efficacy of the RNA vaccines overall with the, the lengthening of the booster time gap? Um, I I think that the RNA viruses would be best given without the time gap. Um, I, I, I suspect that you will get, you continue to get your booster response at 12 weeks. So I think the, the immune system that's been primed with the first shot is still there ready to get going even more rigorously when it gets that booster at 12 weeks. Um, so my, my fear for the RNA vaccines is that the first shot might not be enough to give you the best immunity, um, but you're still going to be okay with a with a vigorous and long-lasting response after that booster at 12 weeks. Um, I, I think I would be personally um, a lot more flexible and subtle in mixing the vaccines. So there's there's another a potential problem with the Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine is that it goes in in this adenovirus vector. You will mount an immune response to the adenovirus vector whilst you're mounting an immune response to the coronavirus bit that's been placed into it. And I think one of the issues with that is that with your AstraZeneca vaccine, you get it and we know that's great and you get your booster and the booster's fine at, at 12 weeks in that case. But further AstraZeneca vaccine doses risk not working because you've now got an immune response which is ready to attack that adenovirus that you're using to carry the coronavirus vaccine into the body. Um, so in that case, actually, what you might be better off doing, if and this is, you know, we're, we're talking hypotheticals here, if we have to start redesigning vaccines for escape mutants, well, you may have lost your ability to use the adenovirus vector ones because you hit the vector. But in that case, you might then give first doses with adenovirus, Oxford AstraZeneca type, and boosters with the mRNA vaccines where you're not risking attacking the vector. So it's, it's complex. Um, and I know there's been a lot of debate as to whether you must have the same vaccine twice. I can see in that instance why actually mixing and matching vaccines would be a a pretty good route to um, getting the best immune response, uh, provided it's done obviously with with good knowledge of of what it is exactly you're mounting the response to. Okay, um, we're getting lots of questions here online, so I'll, I'll give you a, a bit of a triple header here, Mike, if if, if that's okay. Um, it's on vaccinations again, and how many vaccinations do you think we need to get? herd immunity um, in the UK and um, do you think the virus just disappears when the population is immune? Uh, the second part of the question is how worried should we be that data in Israel is showing only 30% protection from the first jab? Um, and are we tracking any negative effects of the vaccine is that there there are some stories that, that people are showing negative reactions to them. Okay, that's that's great. So um, 
how many vaccinated people for herd immunity? Well, it, it depends on the R value of the virus. And initially that was thought to be about point. Um, uh, uh, it, was, it was initially thought to be around three in undistanced conditions. Um, but current thinking is with the new more transmissible variants, we may need to get 80% of the population protected before we have herd immunity. In which case, if we've got 20% of the population infected, we need to get through 60% of the people vaccinated on top of that. Um, so I, so once 80% of the population are infected, are either infected or vaccinated, we'll reach herd immunity. Uh, the virus won't disappear. It will keep transmitting. And, you know, this is one of these questions on the global response to COVID-19 and how that impacts upon us is really important because um, we could reach our herd immunity but if we there'll, there'll still be some endemic transmission but if we don't also have a loss of COVID-19 and coronavirus from the rest of the world it will keep on being imported and we keep on having new people being born and who haven't been vaccinated so it will become endemic um, but but I, but, I, but I think once 80% of people are protected we, 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 we will stop transmission uh, yes, I'd be worried about the data coming out of Israel. I don't know what the quality of that data is. Um, but again, it sort of plays to the concerns that I expressed earlier about just how good the protection is from a single dose of the Pfizer vaccine. The, the, the Pfizer trials put it down at 50%. See, one of the issues there, though, is that it's still early days, um, even in the Israel vaccination campaign. And we do know that even if the vaccine is great, you've got 10 days between the vaccine and having a decent immune response to it anyway. Um, so we wouldn't necessarily expect people to be protected during those first 10 days. So I think some of those Israel numbers might might need tweaking a bit to, to take into account that nobody's expecting protection within those first 10 days. The big question is, is what happens between 10 days and 12 months? Uh, so we need to we need to keep an eye on that, and the UK government needs to think about possibly um, amending its its uh, protocols if if that turns out to be anywhere close to to the truth. Um, and we are tracking negative effects, and we've got to track them really carefully and really scientifically. Early days in Norway, reports of twenty nine people in care homes died shortly after having a vaccine. Um, but the vaccine's coming out pretty quickly. 400 people die in Norwegian care homes every week with or without a vaccine. So, so really, there was probably not much of a, of, a, of a change in what one would expect in care home deaths. It's just an association, but a non-causal association. Um, I saw some Moderna vaccine in the US, a batch giving some allergic reactions at a small number. Um, other batches aren't, so probably there's something manufacturing got into that batch that you need to watch and you need to to, to track it in um, comparison to, to everything else. So we, we do track, we track it really importantly, and we have to sort of preempt some of the problems because we still have the, the anti-vaxxers out there in the world who latch onto anything. A colleague of mine has uh, reported that we're going to get lots of cases of Guillain-Barre syndrome, which is a neurological disorder um, appearing in people not after um, uh, after their vaccination. And because there was a, a sort of scandal in the 1970s where Guillain-Barre syndrome appeared to be associated with some flu vaccines, that myth has, has, has been maintained. The reality is though that there'll be no additional cases of Guillain-Barre syndrome. It's just that so many people are being vaccinated. The same people who would have got Guillain-Barre syndrome anyway will get it. but. You can manipulate the stats and say, look, 20,000 people got Guillain-Barre syndrome. All 20,000 have been vaccinated. But everybody's going to be vaccinated. So we're tracking them. We have to be really careful what we do with the data. But, you know, we obviously have to be safe. But we have to look really careful what's correlation versus causation and make sure that we keep, keep the scientific evidence there to, to sustain our campaign. Absolutely. I, I'm getting some economics questions, so I'll, I'll give you a break and let you have a, a glass of water in a second. Um, but first, the uh, questions come through. Do, do you have a preference on which vaccine you would rather have? Uh, yep. Um, I'm um, uh, well, Again, it's context dependent. I, I prefer the Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine um, primarily because I think the 
longevity of the production of the S protein against which we mount a response is better with the Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine. Um, and therefore, I think you will get a more robust response. And I think that the 12 weeks is perfectly fine for the Oxford AstraZeneca one. Um, however, as I mentioned earlier, if we do reach this vaccine escape mutant scenario, then actually your um, your mRNA vaccines from Pfizer, BioNTech, and Moderna are going to be better. Um, also, just just importantly, there are a couple of vaccines coming along using a whole virus, and I would I would I would like to have those, and um, because you're going to mount responses against all different parts of the virus, not just the S protein. Um, so Sinovac, a Chinese company, have got one that's that's in late clinical trials. And French company Valneva. Um, manufacturing in Scotland have got a whole virus vaccine that's probably going to be licensed and ready to go towards the end of this year. Okay, thanks very much. So while Mike takes a well-earned break for a couple of minutes and has a glass of water, um, I've got a couple of questions on inflation and, and spending coming through, so I'll try and deal with those um, relatively quickly. So on inflation, more talk about inflation in the new year. Um, are you concerned about inflation given the vast increases in money supply and um, just general expectations on inflation for this year and in the medium term and interest rates? So if I can push those into uh, one answer, um, I think over 2021, generally, inflation will be volatile and it will be volatile, you know, number one, because you're coming up to the anniversary of events such as low energy prices oil prices were negative for, for a short while. So, you know, what you're seeing is a higher oil price against lower oil price. So, you know, arithmetically that pushes inflation up. And you've also got indirect tax effects as well, anniversaries of those. So in the UK, for example, um, you've got VAT on um, hospitality being uh, reduced for a while. Um, in Germany, you've got the cut in VAT. And also, that will cause volatility in itself, but when those policies are reversed, you, you will get that uh, rise in inflation. Um, not concerned about higher inflation um, over next year, but it will go up and it will be volatile. Looking further ahead, um, our view is that there, there is lots of spare capacity in the global economy, particularly in advanced economies where unemployment rates are high. And they will probably rise further in areas um, such as the UK and the rest of Europe as governments are forced to unwind their job protection schemes. And that will probably help to keep wage rates relatively contained and, and therefore will stop inflation from escaping. Now, on money supply, um, absolutely money supply growth has mushroomed because of QE, largely. Um, you know, buying bonds. Um, or central banks buying bonds um, causes money supply to rise. Um, I don't think that that is necessarily or at all a, something which should worry people in the wider inflation sense in terms of CPI. Um, but what we do know, obviously, from QE is that it r pushes up asset prices, and that's partly the, the design of the policy and the channel through which it stimulates the economy. So unless you have, for example, a massive wealth effect through QE, um, raising equity prices, um, I'm relatively uh, relaxed about the effect on wider goods and services inflation. Um, interest rate wise, um, I think don't forget that the cost of the pandemic to governments has been huge. In the UK, we're, we're looking for you know, a, a 400 billion deficit in this financial year. Now, a lot of those policies will be unwound, um, but you still need a degree of fiscal tightening at some stage over the medium term, and that prospect is likely to keep interest rates low. So in the UK, for example, we, we don't expect a rise in the bank rate until the end of 2023. Um, we think the Fed will actually um, keep interest rates lower for longer partly because it's got an easier inflation mandate and partly because it might want to shrink its balance sheet before it starts raising rates. So that might not actually take place until 2025, we think. 
Um, another economics question is, um, will the UK consumer go on a spending spree later on this year? Um, or um, will the end of government support um, release um, disguised unemployment and push it up? Um, and I think that's a very good question. Both of those things will happen. Unemployment will probably rise when um, the CJRS and CEASE are wound down at the moment. That's likely to happen at the end of April. Or that's when it's scheduled to. Unemployment will rise and that will push um, down on incomes and spending. But at the same time, what we've had is a big increase in, in household deposits and household savings, if you like, in bank um, accounts. And we reckon that our initial estimate is that could be about £75 billion. And if all that were released into the economy in one year, that would add something like five or six percentage points to household consumption. So you've got two things there acting against each other. Um, our expectation is that what you will see after a very weak year last year is that broader household consumption will recover again this year. So those are one or two economics questions. Um, okay, let's go back to uh, Mike Barrett and um, back to the virus. Um, beginning with one question here. Um, there are stories that very young children can't pass the virus to adults. Uh, can you comment on the accuracy of that statement? I, I believe they can, um, but it for sure is for whatever reason, less transmissible from young infants to anyone else than it, than it is, is for adults. We still don't understand why that is the case. The virus can get into young children. Um, it can replicate very, very seldom causes disease. Um, and perhaps the viral titer remains very low, which is why they're less likely to transmit to parents, but, um, but they can transmit to, to older people. Um, but it is with a much lower frequency Again, I think many of us by now are beginning to get personal experiences of that where um, children may have caught it at school, come home. Um, certainly when I got it, I went home and, and kindly gave it to others in my family. Um, children are coming home and not giving it to others in their family. Um, why, why it's less transmissible, we don't know, but it's, it's not untransmissible. Got a couple of very good questions coming here and um, two part question. First part is, uh, do you have a view on how many additional UK deaths there are caused by the lockdowns and perhaps due to lack of screening and access to treatment? And the second part is, uh, when would you currently recommend or perhaps predict that the UK should be largely of lockdown restrictions? Um, first question, don't know the numbers, uh, but there's absolutely no question that the loss of screening uh, for various chronic diseases, cancers, um, will be translated into into new deaths, certainly within um, thousands. Uh, exactly how many, I don't know, um, but that, that is going to be one of the lasting uh, legacies of the problems associated, not, not just with, with people being locked in and unable to travel, but the the inability for hospitals to deal with their regular work in the way that they would do without the pandemic. Um, when are we going to be free? Um, but I, I, I have done a, a, a little bit of thinking on, on the sorts of timeframes we might be looking at um, based on my feelings about the science. And just from a personal perspective, my mum got the vaccine. So the rest of my family, I think uh, my, my children, my wife and I are, are okay because we've either had it or been vaccinated as part of the trial. Um, my mum uh, was vaccinated on the 14th of January with the first Pfizer dose. Um, I don't think she'll be protected much at all before uh, later this week. Um, but then because of my concerns about the single dose, I would encourage her to stay indoors until uh, the middle of April, get the booster, wait 10 days, which I think will take us to, to late April. So from our family circle, I think we'll be, we would be okay from the late April onwards. If the government works and gets all of the vaccines into uh, the most vulnerable by the middle of February, I think by extrapolation, then lots of the economy can be looking good by the middle of May. Um, 
will we ever be completely free of some of the uh, measures that are needed? I, I'm sure we will, but I, I, I suspect we're going to carry on unwinding over the summer. Um, so April, I think Easter is a little bit early because it's coming early, but, but perhaps towards the end of an Easter vacation uh, into May, June, hopefully we'll have a nice summer. If vaccine escape mutants turn up, then we're going to have to rethink um, because we'll then be fighting a, a next front on the war against COVID-19. And related to that, and I guess this is more of a psychological question, and it's one which loads of my colleagues ask, and you know, based on um, current trends, what's a realistic date for schools to return? Um, I, I, I would personally go for after Easter, um, but I, I, I know because I think we all have lots of colleagues with young children who um, are requiring home schooling and so on and that and that's why I think we would keep looking at the data to try, try and go more quickly than that um, I would I'd be pretty comfortable with after Easter um, but I, I can see that the social pressure to do so uh, which means we would be looking for data which would support doing it um, perhaps early mid-March I, I just think that what we've seen with the perpetual desperation to sort of get out of lockdown and get some sort of freedom back so we we do that and then we haven't got rid of enough virus so the numbers just come back and we're back where we were now where, where we might be okay of course is that even even if we were looking late february then we might be in a position where uh, people are no longer being hospitalized or dying in the way that we are which is really what the lockdowns are aiming to protect against more than anything so if the vaccination campaign is really good perhaps it will be late february but i i think the government will be very very skeptical about going too soon again because they've been bitten repeatedly having done so before okay thank you well we've got a couple of minutes left but we've got a, a couple of questions which i think are really interesting so i hope people don't mind if we run over by a minute or two um so first just a quick question of medical um, medically inclined. Do doctors know why there's such a drastic inflammation response, uh, given that's what um, seems to be the causes of death? No, um, and it's I, I guess it's a prevailing mystery, and um, one suspects there must be some genetic component to it as well, um, because of the, uh, the the fact that the diversity of symptoms is so wide, even by people who apparently have similar numbers of infectious viral particles. So we, we just don't know why it is that SARS-CoV-2 um, is managing to trigger this horrendous inflammatory response in in some people and, and not others. Um, so we keep looking and if we can find the answer and figure out how to block it at source, then so much the better, but, but so far, no. Okay, I think we've got time for one more question and it's a bit of a triple header here. Back on the, the vaccinations here, Mike. Um, is it likely that um, annual COVID vaccines will be required as a matter of routine? Uh, do you think there is a strong case to make vaccinations compulsory? Um, and related question, I guess the first part is that if, is it true that the vaccine protects you for five months? Um, and would that mean that we we'd need to keep getting re-vaccinated and is that sustainable? Mandatory vaccination at the moment, no. I, we know there's vaccine uh, hesitancy amongst some people, but at the moment I think society has risen to the challenge and are, are getting vaccinated and I would hope that we can we can get there without mandatory vaccination. That's at the government level. I can imagine individual companies would insist upon their staff being vaccinated if they're coming back to work and that's and that sort of thing. Um, so uh, I think I think we'll get there. Um, I think the vaccines will last more than five months um, with a booster in particular. And if you think about it, if some of the evidence that the government have worked upon thinks that a single dose is going to do it for three months, and we know that the second dose is going to greatly enhance the longevity of our immune response. I think the vaccines will last way beyond 
five months. How much longer, I don't know. And I, I don't think it's a bad idea that we do have repeated vaccinations. I could even see us moving to a, a position a bit like flu where we're getting an annual jab. And actually the science will keep looking for those mutations. We'll keep on um, uh, upgrading the vaccines to, to hit the, 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 the most prominent circulating strains. So, so we could get to that, that place. Um, so, uh, yeah, I think that I, I think that regular vaccination, but may come a long line. But but I, I think we're going to be protected for more than five months. I can see a question on prioritizing elderly vaccinations, and uh, I'm fully in favour of that. Some countries are going for prioritizing transmissibility. The United Kingdom policy is to save the most vulnerable. And I think from, from any public health perspective, the uh, saving life is the priority. Thanks, Olivia. Um, it's good to end on a, a, a relatively optimistic note. Um, uh, thank you very much, Mike. Um, yeah, thanks very much to everyone for attending. That, that closes uh, the current economic webinar. Of course, another special word of thanks to Professor Michael Barrett and, um, for sharing his insights with us. That's all for this time. We are now aiming to uh, be holding the economic webinars on a monthly basis. So hopefully see you in a month or so's time. Goodbye and keep safe.